Hi, everyone. This is Rebecca with a couple of things before we kick off. This is our last episode of the season, and in it, we talk about suicide. So if you may struggle with that discussion, please take care. We have resources listed in the show notes as well. It's a great conversation, as you will see. We hope you get something good out of it, and we'll see you in a few months for season two. Welcome to Problem Performers, a podcast about professionals who challenge the status quo at work. I'm Rebecca Weaver, and yes, I too have been labeled a problem performer at least once or twice in my career. But looking back, I know where it is a badge of honor. In fact, all the most interesting people I know have earned this label at some point. In reality, these are the people who challenge their workplaces to be better and do better. I think we should all aspire to be problem performers in our work lives, because the only way to make real change is by shaking things up. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This week, we are talking about mental health in the workplace. It is a topic that is crucially important, and yet it feels like it's really only starting to make it into mainstream conversation. And I am so thrilled to have one of the people who's really leading the way in this conversation in normalizing and destigmatizing this topic is my guest today, Natasha Bowman. She is an accomplished HR executive with a JD who's known as the workplace doctor because of her ability to diagnose workplace issues and proven solutions. For almost 20 years, she's worked to transform the American workplace from the inside out, inspiring organizations to craft highly engaged cultures where every employee is truly dignified and valued for their contribution. So you can tell why I am so thrilled. She's recognized as a top 30 global guru for management, has spoken at TEDx, major organizations across the country. She's a best-selling author of You Can't Do That at Work, 100 Legal Mistakes That Managers Make in the Workplace. You definitely need to pick it up. And as you'll see, she has shown incredible courage this year in sharing her own mental health journey. So Natasha, I have been so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me and for that warm introduction. Yes, of course. Of course. Well, can we just cut right to this conversation and the heart of it? You recently um, have shared your bipolar disorder diagnosis with your social media followers. Did it feel like like a coming out of sorts for you? Oh, it definitely was. You know what? I never even thought. In fact, I said that to my husband when I made the decision to share my story. I said, I think I'm going to come out on LinkedIn. And and by that was... Um, I had been, you know, diagnosed with this condition for, you know, at that point, uh, several months. I had had a suicide attempt and um, a 10-day inpatient hospitalized stay in a mental health hospital. And for someone as accomplished as you just described, um, you know, you know, going through that, I was very embarrassed, very ashamed, and really thought that my credibility, you know, and my expertise was going to be, you know, brought into question. So I didn't tell people where I was. I mean, people noticed that I was absent from my social media platforms and all the things that I usually engage in. 
I was getting messages like, oh, hey, I miss you. You know, where, you know, where are you? And I just, you know, completely just crawled into this space of shame and silence. And, um, you know, one morning, you know, I just woke up and I said, you know, I've always used my platform, you know, to be transparent, to be vulnerable. I've talked about my, you know, issues with having a heart condition as a child and having, you know, open heart surgery as a child, being a single mother, you know, just all of these other vulnerabilities um, and challenges and barriers that I've had throughout my life. And this was yet something to add to that. But for some reason, I was very, very hesitant where I, I usually am not. But I just woke up one day and said, I have to share this. I have to use, I've been, you know, very privileged to have this huge social media following. And what, as I encourage other people, I'm always asking, when you have privilege, what do you do with your privilege? It's not about being ashamed of having privilege. It's about what you do with that privilege. Lend your privilege to others. So I said, you know what? This is an opportunity I, I, I can't miss. I've got to use my platform to talk about my journey. I've got to put a face to mental illness um, that usually is not associated. And more importantly, you know, because I was so much better at that point in my journey, I need to let others know who suffer from mental illness that guess what? There is light on the other side. You can still thrive. At that point, my career had bounced back. I was feeling good. And I knew that I could survive and thrive through this. And I wanted to encourage and inspire others to do the same. Well, you have no doubt done that. I know that it's been a long, long journey. Could you tell us a little bit about um, maybe when it sort of started for you? What were some yeah. of the kind of early signs? What did that, how is that showing up for you? Yeah, you know, with the bipolar disorder and especially the type that I have, what I didn't realize was that my mental illness was actually fueling my success, you know? So mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of these like deep, dark stories of destruction, you know, or things where, you know, whereas I have a sibling that suffered from bipolar disorder for years and had been diagnosed. And although she's master's prepared, very educated, very, you know, beautiful, I mean, she was like second winner up in Miss Alabama pageant, but her bipolar disorder went down a different path. And, um, you know, she lived a very destructive lifestyle and she has spent years in and out of mental institutions and it's on permanent disability. Mine kind of went in the other direction. I was always what I know now um, in a manic episode. I lived in mania and I could go, you know, nights without sleep. You feel like you're on top of the world. You can accomplish everything. You know, people would ask me as a black woman, why, how can you walk in the room so confident? And, you know, you know, I just thought, oh, that's just me. That's my personality. But it was really the mania that was fueling that. It really fueled my career in a positive direction. But it wasn't until when COVID happened. And as you know, the world came to a stop, a screeching halt. All of my events had been canceled. I was planning a conference at the Lincoln Center in New York City gone, you know, got that email canceled. I was actually going to Indonesia to pick up that top global guru award canceled. And I had wrapped, what I realized is that I had wrapped who I was into my career and into my profession. And when that was taken away from me, I didn't know who I was anymore. So some of the first signs that I didn't realize were signs to later was that I retreated. I told myself one morning, 
I didn't want to be a mother anymore. I didn't want to be a wife anymore. I didn't want to be a professional. I, I mean, I even went out and like got another apartment. I mean, it was just crazy. My husband is like, what's happening? Like this happened overnight, you know? And um, then, you know, so I just really retreated from being myself and didn't want to be around anybody, very withdrawn. And then um, the ironic thing was that after the murder of George Floyd, my business started to pick up again. People wanted to have conversations about race and racism in the workplace. So here I am back on the grind, not traveling, but in front of, you know, in front of Zoom, I've got my clients. Okay, my, my business is going to be okay. But yet I continue to go down this dark, dark hole in what I know now is depression. And it got deeper and deeper. Um, but yet, because of my profession, because of that expectation that I had already set, um, I was still showing up on Zoom, still smiling. No one knew that I was suffering. And then just one day in January of 2021, January 25th to be exact, of 2021, one night, I just decided I can't take it anymore. And I gathered every pain pill, every anti-anxiety pill that I could find in my house um, in a bottle of champagne and went into the guest room, took every single pill, swallowed the whole bottle, drank the whole bottle of champagne and closed my eyes for what I thought was going to be the, the final time. And it was after I woke up um, in that inpatient facility um, that I was diagnosed after a few days of talking um, and, 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 and come to find out some of these depressive moments had been happening, but I called them burnout. Like, oh, I've been working so hard. I'm burned out. That's why I can't get out of bed. That's why this, that was actually depression. I didn't know what that was. Um, so I was diagnosed while I was in the inpatient mental health facility. I think about so much. Thank you, first of all, for sharing for sharing that. I'm thinking about one of the things you said about how we wrap ourselves up in, you know, our our identities, in our productivity, essentially. You know, what we do is who we are. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what, as especially as you have worked through this process for yourself, what have you learned about that? Yeah. So since then, I really have done so much better in identifying what is it outside of my career that Mm -hmm. I value and can enjoy. Um, You know, I literally worked from sunup to sundown. Every success that I had of myself, every value was wrapped up in my career. Uh, One of the first things I did was during the summertime, um, I never learned how to swim. So I went and learned how to swim. I had a big fear of water And I was all about conquering fears because that was, you know, really what that's about, you know, because it really started my depression with fear, fear of losing that identity of being of this accomplished professional. So how do you conquer fear? So one of my other fears was water. So I, you know, took swim lessons on my birthday. I jumped off of a boat into Lake Michigan. You know, I did those. amazing. Yes. But I'm still working on it. Um, you know, yeah. even, um, you know, I told my husband yesterday, I was getting ready to do something and I was really tired. And I was like, you know what? I'm shutting it down because I'm, you know, overworking myself. I'm extending myself beyond what I should, but I'm still working on that. I'm still trying to separate my my value and worth from work. Um, it's very, very hard for me. I'm still a work in progress. Um 
And, um, I, but I will continue to, I spend, I do spend more time with family, um, you know, and value that time. And also know that, you know, I'm also valuable as a mother, as a wife, you know, and those types of things. Um, and, but, it, but it, I'm still working on it. I still have to remind myself um, of that. Yeah, I think probably part of the reason I asked that question is because it's something I'm working on too. I think so many of us are, um, especially those of us who go into business for ourselves. You know, we're driven by the work, we're driven by the passion. And so it is very easy to get to that point where you feel like your identity is tied up in what you do um, when you're so passionate about what you do. Absolutely. And I remember, um, so I, in a very different way, um, had some kind of similar sort of questions that I was wrestling with over the past couple of years as well. Um, I remember having a conversation with, I think it was my therapist, um, which I highly recommend to everybody, Um, (laughs) but having a conversation and she said to me, you know, what if it was all just okay? Meaning, what if, you know, if you didn't reach this particular milestone with your business or you didn't reach this particular revenue or you didn't have this number of signups or, you know, whatever those measurements were that I had set up for myself. Um, part of what I went through during that same time period with the pandemic, when everything shut down, I was going through my own health issues and... I also had, I had to put my business on hold for the better part of a year, which was so challenging because again, it was like, oh, who am I if I'm not doing these things? Mm -hmm. And so that question of what if you were totally and completely valued and valuable if you never did anything else? That's right. That's right. And, 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 it's a great question. And that's something I have to debate because I, I still, I find myself back in that whirlwind, you know, when I came back online, you know, I'm finding myself like, oh, I got a new book coming out, you know, and so it's all about that. I have all these media appearances. And so, you know, it's, I'm finding myself caught up in that whirlwind of well, what can I do next? What can I do next? It's never enough for me. Yeah. And, um, and I think I have to realize that what I have accomplished is enough. And that I am enough. And that, yeah. that that is just something that has been a struggle. Um, I think growing up as an African-American woman um, in the South, um, where you, you, you don't see a lot of, you know, professional success, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it was always you had something to prove, you know, yeah. um, even after I was educated. It was like I always had something to prove there. But I didn't have the opportunity. So when I had the opportunity to relocate to New York, all of a sudden, New York City embraced this little Black girl from Montgomery, Alabama, and gave me all of this opportunity. I was thinking, you know, I can't pass up on this. You know, it's, you know, I've got, I'm being invited this place and that place and this place. How dare I say no when I've been given this privilege and this honor that I wouldn't have in my, you know, very own hometown? And so, you know, it's just always, it's it's so many just conflicting things in terms of, you know, having this expectation of yourself, you know, trying to meet expectation of others, you know, and then this value. So, you know, it's, I get caught up in it. I'm still caught up in it. 
Um, and it's just something that I think that especially women and other marginalized uh, people um, have to work on. And that, you know, when I've talked about talk to people after I came out with my mental health diagnosis and people share their stories, a lot of it is the same. A lot of it has to do with it's tied up in this intersectionality of, you know, having to be successful um, and getting caught up on it and not taking care of yourself. We think about the uh, Miss USA that recently killed herself, yeah. you know, yeah. and, um, you know, the fact, you know, here she was a successful lawyer, a, a former Miss USA anchor, you know, from the outside, you know, had it all. But I, her story resonated so much with me. And, you know, I could just imagine, I don't know her completely, but I could imagine those final thoughts of, you know, it wasn't that I was, I'm still not meeting this, you know, unrealistic expectation. I can't imagine doing all this and trying to remain like beautiful, like be missile, you know, be this whole yeah. face. <laughs> you know, I, yes. I can add in that layer, you know, to it, this beauty expectation to it. Right. Because uh, I had to get rid of that as well. You know, it was just yeah. like, okay. I am who I am, especially when I start taking my um, antidepressant medicines and all of that weight start coming on. I had to get over that. I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I'm alive. And you're going to take me for for what it is, you know. But even that, right, you know, especially when you're out in front, you know, takes a while. So I can't imagine what she was going through with all of this professional and beauty expectation and how that crescendoed for her, you know, Mm -hmm. and um. And we're just seeing more and more, uh, you know, I, I think we're in a different pandemic that's not being addressed with this mental health crisis, you know, and I think we have to do something soon. You know, people younger and younger are, you know, having suicide ideation and, and dealing with anxiety and depression and times in their lives where they should just be taken in, you know, and I think that's that social media standard, or I'm not meeting this expectation, or I'm looking at this life and I don't have it. Um, So there's lots of work to be done. And I'm glad that we're finally introducing these conversations and having it. But so many more conversations and work needs to be done, especially in workplaces. Right, right. I, you know, I'm, I think about all of the, we use this term intersectionality, right? When we talk about all of these ways that your identities are intersecting and that they impact how you experience the world. And I'm, I'm wondering, I, I'm, I know that what you're experiencing must be really common for, especially women of color in the workplace, the ambition, you know, having to um, carry that in addition to the weight of the expectations that you must feel on you. What advice do you have for other women of color who are struggling with the same kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, it's going back to what I said earlier. It would be just knowing you are enough and, you know, set expectations for yourself and make sure that those expectations are reasonable. And, you know, what I have, some of the things that I have been okay with is sometimes my best for that day is to sleep all day. I'm doing my best that day. And and that's all I can do. And everybody has to be okay with that. 
And before that would be unacceptable for me. I would, you know, get up even on weekends. I'm up, I'm working, I'm writing, I'm doing these things. And so setting that expectation that every day is not going to be this super productive day, you know, and that your best is your best and your best may not be perfection. And um, and that can be in your eyes or in the eyes of others, right? Because I think, you know, especially in the workplace, we are always striving for this perfection and to be noticed and recognized for our accomplishments, education. Black women are the most educated population in America, but the most left behind. And I think it's just this, what do I need to do? You, you, you hit that ceiling, you know, and it's, I've gotten the degrees, I've gotten the certifications, I've done this, but yet I can't get ahead. And you know what? Sometimes that seat at that table that we that we want is an uncomfortable seat mm-hmm. and we don't want to be in it. You know what I mean? And, yeah. You know, and and and, and we, we don't want to seat at every table and set your own table. And, you know, and that's what I did for myself several years ago. Um, when I found myself kind of in that whirlwind, even in the C-suite, um, you know, found myself working harder than everyone else in the C-suite, you know, and, you know, doing sometimes their work, but the least appreciated, you know, undervalued. And that was that seat that I was gunning for. You know, I went to, to law school, you know, to, to be the VP of HR for a Fortune 500 company because I read in the bios, um, you know, most of the people that were VPs had these law degrees. So I was like, oh, I'll go to law school. And um, so here I was, you know, I've done all these things and yet I still didn't feel like, oh, yeah, I've arrived. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the table. But like I said, that seat at the table was very uncomfortable for me. Yeah. So what do you do normally if you're sitting in an uncomfortable seat? You go find you another one. Right. That's right. So, <laughs> that's right. So that's what, uh, you know, my advice is, you know, don't don't sit in discomfort. Find comfort. Put your boundaries in place. And again, just like I have to remind myself, you are enough just as you are. And you don't need validation and confirmation from any organization, because if they are not giving that to you, they don't deserve you. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. So you talk about the this other pandemic, this crisis of yeah. mental health that... I think you're right. I don't think we're paying enough attention to it. Let's talk about... From your perspective, what are workplaces getting wrong when it comes to mental health right now? Yeah, I mean, they're not addressing it. I mean, yeah. most workplaces, um, you know, they really fo- they focus on any kind of employee wellness. It's on the physical wellness. It's, you know, they're providing gym memberships, weight loss programs, nutrition programs, steps challenges, all these things for your physical health. And we need that, right? You know, there there's a, a relation between the two. But there's no real, you know, resource for mental health. Um, so it's really looking at what resources you you are providing, and including mental health in your health insurance. What I found out isn't enough. So I had a very good health insurance plan, and it was very difficult for me to find someone. Number one, a lot of providers, mental health providers, don't even take insurance. So you're paying out of pocket to $300, you know, a session. Per session, yes. Per session, yes, per session. Um, or, you know, there's their calendar is so built up. If you can find someone that's even accepting new patients. So, you know, I think about many organizations on site, you know, at in certain industries, 
they have an occupational health office, uh, so occupational health office or workforce health and safety office where if I get injured at work, I can go and they'll, you know, patch me up or do whatever, whatever. Why don't we have a therapist on site? Why don't we have someone where if I'm being bullied or, you know, I'm experiencing a toxic work environment or I'm just feeling sad and depressed or, you know, I'm struggling with my mental health for other reasons. I can go, there is someone there on that site that I can go and speak to, or at least pick up the phone and talk to. Um, You know, I think we've got to think about it in those terms. And going back to something I alluded to earlier, it's also checking their culture because I don't care what resources and benefits you provide. If I'm walking into a toxic work environment on a daily basis, um, that's not promoting mental wellness, then that's an issue. And there's no other resource that you can provide to that's going to accommodate for that. So getting, you know, and we've talked about this before in the past, you and I, those, those bad leaders out of there, those high performers that can get away with anything because they, you know, they're the rainmaker of the organization or, you know, something like that, getting rid of those people, you know, and, and just really uh, assessing your organization for what I like to call disruptors to your culture. Yes. And once we do that, once we start there, because with the many people that have reached out to me, I mean, a lot of their mental health struggles have been so work related or work exasperates, you know, whatever else is there. It's like you're going through this at home and you can't even go to work and have because now I got to deal with this person, you know, and another type of trauma. So, you know, it's about first starting with your culture, then providing these other benefits. I've heard people talk about, you know, using the word trauma with the workplace. And I think it is, of course, I'm not a mental health professional, but it feels to me like a perfectly apt description for what a lot of people experience in the workplace. Absolutely. My husband um, was a teacher, um, a, a brilliant teacher, high school, AP history, and uh, when I went, to, I went to law school at the University of Arkansas, and he taught in a school district uh, where he was the only black teacher at his at this high school that he taught at. Wow. And he experienced so much racism from his principal. I mean, that's the first time that I really saw anxiety and depression. And as a black man, you really, you know, don't feel comfortable or get, you're not given permission to show it. So he had to hide it, you know, and, you know, but it, it was really, really bad. And he ended up exiting that place and he never returned to teaching again because of that trauma. And I think about the, you know, how the education profession already so underrepresented by black males, especially teaching things like AP history, um, you know, and, and they lost the whole profession, lost someone because of that significant trauma that he went through and, and just blatant racism that he experienced at work. I mean, it's long lasting. And um, it's, it's, it was, you know, just, it, it was one of the worst things I thought that, that that could happen in a workplace. I think about the hundreds and maybe thousands of students who lost out because of the toxic environment exactly. that he experienced. Exactly. It's not just that one person, you know, the ripple effects of a toxic work environment affect hundreds and thousands of others right. um, around mm-hmm. them as well. Exactly. Exactly. He 
still to this day, it has been 15 years, you know, gets, you know, things from former students, you know, they'll find it on social media and they're like, oh, Mr. Bowman, you were one of the best teachers I ever had. I remember you doing this. Remember you doing that. And I think about, you know, that's a lasting impact. And, you know, like you said, in all of these years, all of these people have not had the opportunity to experience him, you know, to be educated by him, this brilliant person. Um, and and it, it, it's, it, it, you know, he should still be in the classroom and, right. and, and not. Right. I, you know, I think about when we talk about toxic workplaces and when we're doing coaching with employees at HR Uprise, one of the things that comes up frequently is this, people will say, well, I thought it was just me. I thought I was the only one going through it. And you very well may be as your husband was, um, or as you experienced being the only person sitting in the room who looks like you. Um, But also I tell, you know, we tell our clients, it is almost certainly not just you. It's not just in your head. It is not like what you are experiencing is absolutely unacceptable. And it, and and it goes beyond just you. You are surely not the only one who's affected by this. And there is what we find is that there are so many people who you our our initial instinct is to turn it back on ourselves, right? What did I do? What did I, especially for us as women, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? Oh, yeah. um, and and so there's a, there's a process of unraveling these uh-huh. kinds of experiences, right? So that we can like truly understand them for what, what they really were. Yep. You start to question yourself, like, you know, am I the only one seeing this or hearing this? Yeah. And you start to doubt like, well, maybe I am not performing or maybe it is me, you know, and, and right. it's a lot of that, you know, doubt that you have. And, you know, over time, right it chips away at your confidence, you know, and you, you it, that's why we start to develop imposter syndromes. And it actually, it follows you. So let's say you come out of this toxic workplace, you go into another, well, guess what happens? I'm bringing that trauma yeah. with me from my previous workplace. And now I don't have trust, right? With my next um, workplace. And that workplace can be, you know, fully engaging, inclusive, but any little thing, I'm like, oh, you're, it's happening to me again. And yep. I've seen people that can't even receive feedback because it's like, oh, oh, you're targeting me, you know, because you you have brought that trauma with you. It's PTSD, yeah. you know, if you really yeah. think about it, you know, if someone has served in, in war, you know, they hear, you know, you hear the stories of they'll hear a car backfire, something like that. You know, they jump on the ground like, oh, is that a gunshot? That's the way that you, you, you feel it. it. It follows you from workplace to workplace. And many people are not never able to kind of shed that PTSD. It's never addressed, you know, and we don't go to therapy and say, hey, you know, I've had this experience at work. So, you know, I need to get help to, to help me to um, move past that, you know, and, and be able to realize when I'm in a better culture. So, you know, it's just this, this PTSD that you bring with you from workplace to workplace and it just continues, then it's passed down even generationally, because then you start to tell your kids, you know, hey, this is what's going to happen to you when you get at work. So you kind of walk in, you know, your kids walk in on eggshells to a degree. Yeah. So I called this podcast problem performers because it's a term that I want to flip on its head. Okay. It's a term that I have found 
we tend to use to label people who either speak up or challenging the status quo, right? And it's Mm -hmm. this tactic used that we call them problem performers. Mm -hmm. How do you see that playing out with mental health in the workplace? And thank you for clarifying that because I saw the name. I was like, "Hmm, are we going to talk about like literal (laughs) problem performers? Yes. You know, because I can talk about that too. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. You know, if I think about outside of mental health, you know, you've done it. I've done it. You do HR investigations and oh, that person's a problem. They speak up too much. They defend themselves too much. You know, um, you know, they're, they're called angry or this or that. Um, and, and then they start to find ways to, to, to move you out of the organization rather than address the issues that you're, you're bringing up. And I think that's no less different than people that's suffering from mental health. And the stories that I've heard um, you know, and luckily I'm not, you know, since I've had this diagnosis, I, I'm not working for someone where I can see it, you know, could feel that. But I have heard the stories of, hey, you know, I may need to take time off. I mean, and time that's due to me, FMLA that I am legally entitled to because I need to take care of my mental health. And that has backfired. You know, oh, you're always out. Oh, you're always this. And is that really, you know, you're using this, you know, HR gets the paperwork, oh, suffering from depression. Oh, you're you're just using that as an excuse to, you know, take time off, you know, and people thinking that's not a real illness, you know. And I have actually, you know, worked with managers where I've said, you know, someone's off, you know, this is, you know, and it's like, oh, that's just an excuse. You know, there you can go, you can go to any doctor and say you don't feel well and get FMLA. So, you know, it's, it's, or you're depressed, you know, and you can get FMLA and it is just not addressed. And I was even noticing when people were out for physical things, you know, other things that get more empathy. Oh, it was, oh, let's send them flowers. Let's see if they need food. Let's do this. Let's do that. But my employees that were out for these mental health issues, silent, you know, yes, yeah, you know, oh, no, no flowers, no food, no phone calls. And then when you come back, you're coming back to this hostility and resentment. And I have just I saw that happening. But I tell I'll be honest, it wasn't until I've gone through that um, where where I can imagine, you know, what that felt like, because even going um, into my final days before my suicide attempt, I found it more and more um, challenging for me to get up and get on Zoom and, and, and speak to my clients. And I was having to cancel things more and more. I just could not do it. And that's not me to cancel unless I'm just like, don't have a voice, you know? And I was always able to pretend even when I wasn't happy and push through but, you know, I was, you know, having to cancel things and particular client that I, you know, canceled twice at this point. And because I just simply couldn't do it. And um, someone that I knew, they're kind of texting me like, oh, they're kind of upset, you know, that you canceled again. Didn't know that it was my mental state. Thought they were being a friend and giving me an inside scoop. But that was one of the things that kind of pushed me over the edge because I'm like, now You know, again, going back to that one thing that I thought I was good at, which was, you know, my business. Now that's even failing me. I can't even be good at that anymore. And so I can't imagine in the workplace, you know, when you you're waking up and you just can't make it in that day or you just can't turn that camera on that day. 
then you're you're seen as a a problem. Oh, oh, she's depressed again. Oh, you know, because you don't have these specific things. Sometimes you don't even know what's wrong with you. You don't even know it's depression. You don't know how sometimes these mental health issues show up. You just know you don't feel well, you know, and to not have that diagnosis, but no, you don't feel well, that plays with your mind. And then you can't explain to someone else and then you're a problem. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting because the CDC defines depression and anxiety as a complicating factor for your risk factors for COVID. Mm. And so I look at that and I think, how on earth is that not sparking some conversation for us to think very differently about this? And I also think for all of us who have lived through this global pandemic, we're now headed into year three Mm -hmm. of it. How is it that we're not all dealing with some form of mental health crisis. Yeah. I think right? we all are. That's why I call it another pandemic. I, I literally think every, almost everyone is dealing with it, whether yes. it was, you know, because of job loss, the uncertainty of your life or the lives of others. I mean, here in New York, yeah. City, I mean, it was yes. just by the day, you know, I, I would drive down the street, you would see U-Hauls with bodies in it. I mean, those images, yeah you know, temporary gray sites in Central Park. And th- those are the types of things that you can't get out of your head. Not mm-hmm. to mention, uh, my husband lost one of his best friends. We lost no. his mother. Um, you know, my daughter, um, you know, here she is yanked out of school. She's the only child living at home, mm-hmm. isolated pretty much in her room all day, going to virtual school, no interaction with, with kids. Um, that I go through my own mental health crisis. And then as I'm getting better and we're returning to quote unquote normalcy, her grandmother dies of COVID. So, I mean, and that's for a a 14 year old child. Yeah. Um, So, you know, the stories go on. I'm sure everyone has their story. And we're and like you said, we're just not addressing the long-term impact of this pandemic. We're thinking- I watched the news this morning. Oh, endemic is coming. You know, oh, what does normal look like? Take, oh, take off your mask. Go back to work. Do a, we are not even having a discussion about how do we go back, reflect, and heal from what we just went through for almost three years? Yes. Right? You know, that's I, just not even part of the point. I hear nobody talking about that. They're talking about getting your booster shot, you know, Matt, when you can mask, when you can do that. Nobody is integrating that into the conversation. Right. I mean, I I think about how much it, we we have not even begun to understand the lasting, long-lasting impacts of this pandemic on multiple generations. You know, I think about our children mm-hmm. and what they have grown up with, thinking, you know, learning is normal. Mm-hmm. Um And what this will do for all of us, you know, Mm -hmm. all of us have been affected by it in very, very distinct, deep ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think we're going to fully appreciate the the ramifications, the mental health impacts of this. I don't think it'll fully, we'll fully understand it for decades. For decades, for decades, you know, um, you think about even... um, slavery, right? And they're now talking about 
here we are, you know, three and four generations removed from slavery and, and the PTSD and the trauma that is now built into the DNA of people yes. due to the trauma of slavery. I think we will see that same thing um, happening as a result of this pandemic, um, yeah. that generations to come, that this will be long lasting. Um, and, you know, and, and but again, nobody's talking about that. It's just not yeah. part of the conversation, which is very, very disappointing. Yeah. So what are some of the things I'm really curious, what are some of the things that were helpful to you as you're kind of going through this challenge um, and then kind of coming, coming out? I don't know if you ever come out the other side. I don't know if you would describe it that way, but, you know, as you're, um, you know, learning to, to live with this diagnosis and learning to really function um, at a really high level again, what are some of the things that have been really helpful for you? Yeah, you're right. There is no, you know, come out of it. It's a diagnosis that I will always have. And um, what's been helpful is number one, accepting this condition. And mm-hmm. it took me a while to accept that I was someone living with a mental illness. Even saying that out loud a year later hits very, very hard. I yeah. have a mental illness. And it, it, even in my own head, it's a stigma around it. I have to talk myself off the ledge that, you know, that's okay. One in five people in the U.S. suffer from it. It's more common than a heart attack, a stroke, you know, Mm -hmm. but we just don't talk about it that way. So it's accepting it. And once you accept it, then that's when you're able to kind of figure out, well, how do you live with it? And so, couple of things is, you know, working with my mental health providers, um, you know, and I say providers because it's therapy where you talk through coping, you know, skills and things like that. And then it's your psychiatrist that does your medication management treatment planning. Um, even that's been an issue. You know, I don't know if you saw the post that I posted where, I experienced a lot of um, bias um, from my healthcare provider. Mm. And, you know, as I'm healing um, along the journey and accepting this illness, um, there were times where I continued to have suicide ideation because I didn't want to accept, you know, what I had just gone through and this illness and living with it and what did that look like. And one particular time I discussed that with my psychiatrist, you know, and just said, Hey, you know, I haven't been feeling well. I've been having some suicidal thoughts. Um, you know, my husband was very concerned. He even suggested that I called and he had been a part of our calls and very actively involved in my treatment planning, et cetera, et cetera. So she was very aware of the resources I had, et cetera, et cetera. So she says, you probably should go to the emergency room. So, and I, I agreed. So hung up the phone. Um, so we're packing up, you know, getting ready to go getting my daughter's things ready. We um, had spent the, the the summer in the city where my husband's family was. So we have lots of support around us. So we were getting her ready to go to um, one of his um, siblings' houses. And she calls back and says, go into another room, go alone. And I'm like, okay. So a couple of things I need to share with you. Um, number one, I call CPS, Child Protective Services, because I think your daughter's in danger. And I said, well, you know, my husband's here, right? And I didn't tell you I was homicidal. I told you I was suicidal. And my husband can take, he's a primary caretaker of my child, always has been. 
and he'll make sure that she's safe. We're, we're getting her safe. Well, 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 I've called them already. And I don't know if they'll respond if I've called. And I also call the police because I don't think it's you're going to go to the hospital. So I call the police to come and get you and take you to the hospital. And I'm like sitting there by myself, already suicide ideation. And then you tell me to go along and then tell me pretty much you don't trust my Black husband to take care of his Black family. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it was the most traumatic, you know, thing. So finding a provider, of course, never spoke to, to her. You know, I was like, okay, you're done. Right. Luckily, CPS didn't come. We got to the hospital before the police came to drag me to the hospital. And, you know, I had to call them. Okay, hey, I'm here. You don't have to come get me. Um, I mean, it was such a traumatic experience. And um, and even the people at the hospital were like, what? You know, they, they had never heard of that. Like, we get suicidal people all the time and nobody's ever called. We don't even call CPS or somebody's here. Like, so it's, yeah. you know. But so find the right provider, someone um, that's comfortable dealing with Black families. And, you know, I never thought yeah. about that before. I never thought about for healthcare. I would have to ask someone as a precursor, hey, are you comfortable? How how culturally competent are you yeah. to administer medical care? Uh, but finding that those right providers, um, staying with my treatment plan, and then just having that support, being transparent with my husband about my feelings, and and, and also sharing a lot with him about you know symptoms, things he should be looking for, you know, looking for. Um, so that he can, you know, I did a, even a medical proxy, though, so he can call and say, just in case I'm in denial, you know, because yeah. I was going through that 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 first little manic episode, um, you know, so he can call and say, hey, she she needs help, you know, and so, um, so it's a lot of a lot of that. Um, I will tell you, you know, I, there have been there has been, you know, where I haven't gotten support, I haven't spoken to my mother or my mother hasn't spoken to me in several, several months, my sister, mm-hmm. my niece, um, because of this situation. And that's a whole nother story. So I lost a lot in the, in the process as well. Um, so it was almost like I'm dealing with my issues and grief at the same time. Yeah. I lost a whole bloodline. And um, so it's, it's a lot. I'm still going through it. And I don't even know if I'm the right person to even ask the question, at yeah. this. but where I am today and, and how I'm able to have this conversation is, um, what I like to say a phrase, turning my pain into purpose. There was a reason that I woke up on January 26th. I don't know how I woke up on January 26th because I just knew I had, you know, done what I need to do. Nope. There's a reason I woke up. So I'm turning that pain into purpose so that others too can wake up. And I don't mean from a literal sense, from a suicide attempt, but wake up to their own feelings, wake up to not having to be silent anymore. And if you're not suffering, waking up to those that suffer and providing them with the support and the resources and the empathy. And that's the key word there, because that's what's missing when it comes to mental illness the empathy and compassion that yes. you Yes, that is, that is the core of what we all need to bring to what we're doing. I want to, I just want to thank you for sharing your story. I want to also say you are incredible 
And I have long, long admired you both for what you do professionally, but also for just exactly who you are. And you, your voice, your story is helping so many people. You fight for, you have always fought for employees in the workplace, but um, now even taking on, you know, an even more personal um, mission for that. I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for, for what you're doing. Well, likewise, we've been friends for some years now and um, we, you know, started on the same journey, you know, and um, I've always admired you as well. You've always been a very strong ally and I've always appreciated that. I think of you on almost a daily basis Mm -hmm. and um, it has been my absolute honor to sit down and have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. So Natasha, first of all, what's next? For you in 2022, what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to, um, I have a book coming out. Um, It's based on my TED Talk. It's called The Power of One, Leading with Civility, Candor, and Courage. Already on pre-sale wherever you buy your books. Um, We will include a link for sure. And I'm also working on another book, even though that one's not even published yet, um, around mental health. Um, So I do want to ask your listeners, if you visit my LinkedIn profile, I released a survey just today around the state of mental health in the workplace. And I would love for your listeners to go in and take that survey. It'd be open for the next several weeks. I'm hoping to get a thousand respondents because I want to hear about your experiences so that that's going to help me to drive my work to see where the work needs to focus Um, But I need to hear from you. I need to see, you know, where the demographics are, you know, around this and what your experience have been. And that's what I'm excited about. You know, I never imagined myself two years ago, this being the focus of my work in a million years, but this is where life has taken me. So I'm just going to, you know, take it on. And, and that's what I'm excited about coming up next. That's amazing. So you mentioned LinkedIn. Um, Where else can people find you online? LinkedIn, um, just my name, Natasha Bowman JD. Um, On Twitter, Natasha Bowman JD. On Instagram, at the Workplace Doctor. Um, And my website, if you're interested in me coming on site to do training programs or speaking about mental health um, or any other organizational culture issue, performance renew.com. Fantastic. Once again, thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Problem Performers is a production of HR Uprise Media, part of an organization built around a single question. What if you could have HR that works for you rather than your boss? Well, now you can with your own HR Uprise coach. Get affordable, confidential advice from an experienced HR pro who works only for you. Learn more at hruprise.com. And hey, employers, we've got you covered too. HR Uprise provides independent investigations, harassment prevention training, private employee coaching, and much more. Email us at hello at hruprise.com or visit our page at hruprise.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.